Turn to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 62. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed for you in the bulletin. If you prefer to use a Bible but didn't bring one, there is one uh, in front of you. There should be a black pew Bible right in front of you, and it is on page uh, 784. 784. If you don't have a Bible at home, by the way, feel free to take that with you as a gift today, that black Bible that's in front of you. On page 784, we're going to see this story of the resurrection of Jesus. You may know that there's four Gospels in the Bible, four different accounts, and today we're going to Matthew's Gospel. And I do believe that even though each Gospel teaches us so much about the resurrection of Christ, this is one of my favorites to read because it, it's a unique take that, that Matthew gives us. It's an interesting account. What he focuses on is those who didn't believe in the resurrection. And I take it uh, as a fact or take it for granted this morning that as we come in um, into this room today that there's going to be a variety of opinions on what actually happened with the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe in one of three camps, maybe there's some, some bleed over between the, the camps, but I know that we, many of us are skeptical of the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus was actually physically raised from the dead, that he was dead and then he became alive again for whatever reason, for philosophical reasons, for scientific reasons, whatever it may be. Some of us may be in camp two, which is where we believe in the resurrection as an idea, and, um, and maybe a very powerful idea, whether if Jesus physically rose from the dead or not, maybe we're not sure, but, um, but as an idea, you know, the idea of the resurrection is a powerful one, and it's one that we need to attend to as a culture, that we, you know, that, that after winter comes spring, that there's, there's death and then there's life, and that there's a cycle to these things, and maybe that's important, but maybe Jesus physically rising from the dead is a part of that or not. And then a third category of those of us who believe that Jesus was dead. He was physically dead, that he was raised from the dead, and that that, as the Bible tells us, makes all the difference for our faith. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, our faith would be useless without this. And as we read through this passage, we find people in all three of those camps. We find people who doubt, uh, those who are unsure, and also those who believe in the resurrected Jesus. And so I ask you to consider as we read this again, what is it that's what, what you think about the resurrection of Jesus? So let's start in verse, chap, verse 62 of chapter 27 into the 15th verse of chapter 28. The next day, that is, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard or take a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath toward the day, dawn of the first day 
of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the word of the Lord. So I've got to admit this morning that I am a skeptic. I'm a skeptic when it comes to timeshare salespeople. Uh, I'm getting a little recognition uh, in the crowd. Maybe you uh, have had some experience with this. Uh, for those of you who don't know, a timeshare is just a way that you can buy into a vacation rental of some kind, and you can buy a share of the time. You can buy a few weeks uh, of the year and use the property, or you can trade them. And, um, and it's a wonderful thing uh, to have in your family, and we don't own one, but my mother-in-law does, and she very generously gives us time every single year to have a vacation. And so for many years now, we've had you know, at least five to seven days of a free vacation somewhere, free to us, uh, every year. And it's wonderful. And, uh, but you got to know that if you're going to uh, go to a timeshare, you're going to have to deal with the timeshare sales people. Early on in our, our marriage, Becca and I, uh, we didn't have any kids yet. We stayed in one of these that was given to us, and it was a free week of, of stay, but we didn't have any money whatsoever. And so uh, we didn't have anything to do but just a place to stay. And we, sure enough, encountered one of these salespeople, and they said, well, uh, why don't you just come to this quick demonstration? It's going to be five minutes. You're going to be in. You're going to be out. Um, and after that, we're going to give you a free tickets to an Arabian horse show. And uh, again, to those who have no money in the bank, uh, free Arabian horse show was, was going to be part of the thing. So we went to this quote-unquote quick demo, which of course turned into hours of excruciating sales tactics. And we left exhausted. And the Arabian horse show was okay, uh, by the way. Um, I mean, there's only so many times you can see somebody flip off of a horse, you know, and uh, it was good. It was fine. But it was not worth it. And again, not, if you're into sales, we're not bashing sales. There's a good way to do it. There's, uh, it's amazing. But I'm telling you, I'm a skeptic when it comes to that. And I said after that day, I will never go back to one of those presentations again. No matter what. 
No matter what bait is on the other end of that line, I'm going to remain true in my skepticism. And I really don't think that anybody in this room could convince me otherwise. I still haven't gone back to one. And I don't think that anybody could use any kind of uh, words to convince me to go back. I am secure in my belief. And even if, I want you to imagine for a second, what if they were offering truly the deal of a lifetime, and truly there was something free, and truly it lasted five minutes, it still would fall on deaf ears because I have a well-guarded, secure belief. I know that for many, the Christian idea of the resurrection or even belief in, in Christ or salvation appears to be a sales pitch. And maybe you've had a bad experience or two that has made you secure in that belief. And I will love this story from Matthew's Gospel. Because what it gives us this morning is the anti-sales pitch. It actually shows us that some of those who were closest to the resurrection didn't believe. It admits that those who were guarding the tomb did not believe despite what they experienced. And I want us to ask the question and answer from this passage this morning, how do we become secure in our beliefs? How do we become so secure in our beliefs, these well-guarded things in our lives? It's easier to see in other people than it is to see in ourselves So let's follow along. There's little three episodes here of the guards who guarded the tomb. They were guarding it for the religious leaders who come before Pilate. And Pilate gives this great phrase in verse 65. Pilate said to them, Take a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. Do your best. What are they really guarding? These religious leaders are guarding their perspective on their own control and their own power and their own ability to suppress what is true. They're guarding against people following Jesus. And the Bible is very honest about that. Let's ask the question, how do we become so secure in our beliefs? Three quick things, one from each of these episodes. It's through our presuppositions, through suppression and through control. And by the way, this isn't just for those who don't believe in Christ. This is for all of us. We all guard ourselves. We all are well-guarded people. First, through presuppositions. Big word. It just means that things that we assume beforehand. The things that we already believe. Look with me at verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, We remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. So we have this gathering of the enemies of Jesus. We have the chief priests who are of the Sadducees, that that group. And then we have the Pharisees and we have Pilate. The Pharisees do believe in the resurrection, but they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. They believe in a final resurrection. But the Sadducees do not believe in any resurrection at all. And we have Pilate, who throughout this story, this governor of Rome, uh, has been on the fence about things. He, even in the crucifixion accounts, as he's 
wondering about Christ and seems somewhat convinced by Him. And he says, go and make this, this tomb as secure as you can. Similar perhaps to the room dynamics that we have here. Similar to the ways that we approach the resurrection even today. But we should see that these are strange bedfellows. These are groups that don't normally interact with one another. In fact, they avoid each other as much as possible. They have a presupposition, they have a belief beforehand that Jesus is a greater threat than their normal enemies. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, normally enemies. Here, they come together. For the Pharisees, there's a further presupposition that that Jesus is a greater threat than even breaking the law. As their Old Testament law-abiding leaders, they're gathering on the Sabbath to talk about this. And so it must be that this is a greater threat than even breaking God's law, what they would normally stand for in any case. But their greatest presupposition is that Jesus and that people cannot believe that Jesus would rise from the dead. They call him an imposter. That imposter said, and they said, the last fraud, verse 64, will be worse than the first. If the disciples come and steal his body, then the fraud will be compounded. We will have um, even greater confusion. And so their greatest presupposition, he's an imposter. Of course, it's three days. They could just wait and see. They could go to the tomb themselves. They could watch the disciples steal if that's exactly what they plan is going to happen. But that's not what they act on. They act on the presupposition that this is not going to happen. This is what we all do. We all have presuppositions. We all have things that we believe in advance are going to be true. And we all use things, use words and ideas that we presuppose to secure our own beliefs. And so they use these actions to secure themselves. They have a stone, a seal, and a guard given to them by Pilate. The stone rolls in front of the tomb. The seal. What is the seal? The seal would be a, a cord or a rope covered in wax that's pushed into the crevice of the stone. Perhaps bearing um, a, a Roman symbol to say this is sealed government protected property. So that breaking in would be more than against Jewish law of taking the dead. It would be against the Roman law for breaking into something that they were guarding. And then they were given a whole guard. We don't know how many soldiers. Surely the fewest would be four, perhaps as many as 20, who watch over the tomb. They secure the tomb for their presuppositions. Second, suppression. In this second episode with the guards, we find the guards at the tomb. They're they're watching for the tomb, and this is what happens in verse 1 of chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men." The earth quakes 
Actually, the same word is used of the guards. The guards quake along with the earth. And they become like dead men. Frozen. They see an angel as Matthew describes it. They tremble. Surely, seeing and experiencing an angel and the earth shaking and the stone being knocked over and an angel sitting on the stone would have an impact that would cause belief. But if we look further on in the passage, it's clear that the guards are mostly thinking about their own jobs. In verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. A little division of the guards goes out. Maybe they were selected by lots. Maybe they were the ones who were just the bravest to go in and tell their bosses what had happened, that they were unable to keep the tomb secure. The Bible's own message is that those who saw the resurrection first and the events surrounding it were the very ones who suppressed the truth. This is something we're all capable of. The Scripture tells us. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The Bible's own message is that the truth is evident, but the truth can be and often is suppressed. It's pushed down. This is not hard really to understand. I mean, how many of us have Googled something looking for the answer that we want? I know I'm not the only one who's done that. The surprising health benefits of eating cake. Somebody has written that article. I didn't even look it up before. I'm so confident saying this right now that somebody has written that exact article. The surprising health benefits of eating cake. I mean, I could do it right now. I mean, uh, cake makes you happy, right? Having happy leads to better, being happy leads to better blood pressure. Therefore, eating cake has reduces your blood pressure. Right? You know, we, we, can, we can do this all day long. Nature itself tells us that cake, though delicious, is bad for us. But we suppress it. And I'm, I'm saying that having just served donuts to you, so I'm, there's nothing against cake, right, or anything sweet. I'm just saying this is human nature. We suppress the truth. We have presuppositions, and we suppress the truth. And both of these things lead us to be well-guarded in whatever it is that we believe. The third way is through control. We have this final episode skipping down after the resurrection. What happens after? Verse 11, while the guards were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And what's amazing is, as these guards come back to the chief priest, they immediately think, how can we control the situation? And then there's a little negotiation that goes on. Here's what you're going to do, the chief priests say, the smart ones in the room. They say, you're going to tell people you fell asleep. You can hear the, the collective groan of the guards. Oh, we'll lose our jobs. We'll, we'll be killed. They say, hold on. We're going to protect you from Pilate. 
And we're also going to give you a great sum of money. Even if you do lose your jobs, here is the money that's going to provide for you. And if you think about it, this is the best possible cleanup situation for both of them. They each lose something, they each gain something. The Pharisees lose a great sum of money. They also have to go back to Pilate and say, when you said keep it as secure as you can, uh, we didn't do that, sorry. But they gain this message that goes out that the, the Pharise- that the disciples have stolen the body of Jesus. The guards, they lose perhaps their jobs, their dignity to tell people they fell asleep on the job. But of course, they get money and they get to keep their lives. It's the best possible outcome, cleaning up a messy situation. But what it avoids is any discussion of the truth. Immediately, as they report all that had taken place, all that had taken place, they immediately go into control mode. Let's figure out this situation. But surely, if what happened out there happened, then it supersedes any negotiation. At what point do we take our presuppositions and the suppressions and we hold them up to the light and we say, does any of this give me pause with what I believe? Ironically, what the religious leaders were guarding, the tomb, was what Jesus called them. They were guarding what they themselves were. Jesus called them the whitewashed tombs. It was good on the outside, were painted in their exterior, but they were dead on the inside. They themselves were well-guarded tombs. With their presuppositions and their suppression and their control, they came to a place of what they believed was most important to guard, and they guarded it, their interests, their control, their power, and ultimately, their unbelief. And Matthew tells us honestly that it had some effect. The last sentence in the passage says, they took the money, did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And I would add to Matthew's words, and that's still true this day. Today, is true of what was true when Matthew wrote the Gospel just after these events. It's still true that this is the prevailing view for those who do not believe in the resurrection. If you believe, if you have the presupposition that Jesus was a real person, and many people do, even those who don't believe, and if you believe that something happened after the resurrection, that something happened after the death of Jesus, excuse me, that caused the world to be stirred in some kind of way that would lead Christianity from being an outlawed religion to the the prime religion of of Rome in 300 years, if you believe something happened after Jesus' death, and many people do, then stealing the body makes the most sense if you're going to stop short of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There are other theories, of course, that Jesus didn't really die, that He was just swooning, that He appeared to be dead. There are the, the view that the disciples had a hallucination that they really believed that he was risen from the dead, but it was actually just an ecstatic religious event. But who believes these things? To this day, the stolen body makes the most sense, but it doesn't hold up to scrutiny. 
Imagine a conversation with one of these guards and a good friend of his say, after these things are being spread, the friend comes up to the guard and he says, so I heard that the body of Jesus of Nazareth was is no longer in the tomb. And the guard says, oh yeah, unfortunately we, we fell asleep. Um, the disciples, they stole the body. It's tragic, but it happens, you know. And um, they said, oh, that, that makes sense, that makes sense. Um, but actually, there was a whole guard there, right? Um, <laughs> there's a whole guard. And we don't know how many were in the guard. Let's just say at a minimum there was four. There were four of you there that night, right? You're saying all four of you were so deep asleep that you didn't hear when the seal was broken. You didn't hear when the stone fell over. You didn't hear when the disciples were taking the body out. And the guy says, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a crazy coincidence, huh? I can't believe it myself either. It's just, wow, you know, we were all asleep. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, crazy things do happen. I, I just have one more question, though. Like, if, if you were all so dead asleep, how is it that you knew that it was the disciples who stole the body? Now, what you may think that I'm doing is marshalling the best evidence to convince you. And maybe I've given you something to think about, but that is not the point. The point that I'm making is that the Bible says that some of those who were closest to the resurrection relied on their presuppositions, their suppression, and their control instead of believing. Actually, Matthew takes it a step further. Two verses later, it's not printed for you in the bulletin, but these are the next two verses in the Scripture. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. When they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Looking at the resurrected Christ, the guards who witnessed the resurrection, the, the chief priests who would have no reason to doubt the guards' testimony, these are some of the closest people, and they doubted. The point is this, our beliefs come from such a well-guarded place within us that it takes more than arguments and even experiences to convince us to change them. It takes more than arguments and more than experiences. I can draw no other conclusion from this passage than that. So what will change us? What will, con what will move us into this place of belief if it's not convincing arguments and if it's not experiences? Let's look at those who did believe. The Marys, verse 1 of chapter 28, now after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, <laughs> how would you like to be called the other Mary? That's Mary, the mother of Joseph and James, most likely. They went to the tomb, and behold, there was the great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Mary and Mary and the other Gospels tell us others were with them. Salome, other women came to anoint Jesus, but they really didn't have a plan uh, because they knew that they would not be able to get the stone away, so they 
So Matthew tells us they just came to see the tomb. It's important for us to say that both the disciples and the women who came and were the first witnesses were also still in unbelief. They believed Jesus to be dead. What's the difference? Why did the guards become like dead men and run for their jobs and Mary and Mary fall at the feet of Jesus and worship Him? They didn't know that He would be raised from the dead, but here's what they did know. They had seen the truth. They had seen God in the flesh. And they knew that it wasn't right that He wasn't there with them. I wonder if you've ever been to a graveyard. If you've ever been to a tombstone, maybe of someone that you loved. Ask yourself, what is it that you expected to happen when you went to that tombstone? Why were you there? You probably didn't expect to hear or see something from them but you still wanted to acknowledge that it wasn't right, that it was still right that they should occupy some part of your life. And these women came to occupy as close a space to the truth in the flesh as they could. They came seeking Jesus. That's what the angel says in verse 5. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. They came seeking the crucified Jesus. Did they find Him? No. Even better, they were found by Him. Jesus comes in verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell His disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings, that's too formal. He says, hello there. And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. They were met by Jesus on the road. Not the crucified Savior whom they sought, but the resurrected Savior who sought them. And you may think, well, easy enough for them to be transformed by this moment because they're looking right at Jesus. But we've already established that not everyone had the same reaction. That there were those who looked on Jesus' resurrected body and worshipped Him and some doubted. That some guards ran for their jobs and Mary and Mary fell before Him. It is not seeing Jesus in the flesh that transforms us. In fact, it's the opposite. The advantage runs in the other direction. Jesus Himself said when He was talking to Thomas, and He said, Thomas who doubted, come and feel my wounds, come see. And what did Jesus say? Blessed are you, you believe. But more blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. The advantage runs in the other direction, according to Jesus Himself. But it's not true that He is not here anyway. He is here. He's here many times over. The Scripture tells us that He is in our midst when two or three are gathered in His name. The Scripture also tells us that when the Word of God is read and preached, the Holy Spirit brings Christ before us to see Him and behold Him and to interact with Him. The Scripture tells us that Jesus is made known in the breaking of the bread. He is here. And He is still finding those who seek Him. We cannot be convinced. We have to be found. 
And like the soldiers who stood before this resurrection, we are like dead men until Christ makes us alive. The Scripture tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That is what is true of all people. All of us are tombs. All of us are well-guarded tombs. We all have presuppositions. We all suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We all seek to control our lives to the best of our ability. We live this way and we secure ourselves with whatever we can find that will, that will show us the way that we think is true. That's the way that we live. And it's dead until God makes us alive. We all have these things. We pad our lives with assumptions and facts and experiences, believing those things to be true. But they are all death until Christ makes us alive. We can't, you can't convince a dead person. You can only make them alive. But the promise of this passage is still true. That those who seek Him are found by Him. What are you seeking? And in your seeking, whenever you think about what is true, where is this going? In your seeking, have you faced the grave? Have you gone along with the women who looked at a tomb and even though they didn't know what to expect, they knew that it wasn't right what had happened? Can you see what isn't right? Can you face the tomb, the grave? You see what it... What is this all heading towards? And if you attach your seeking to the crucified Christ, the promise of the Scripture is that the risen Christ will find you. All those who seek Him will be found. Let's pray. Father, we come in today well-guarded, well-secure. Uh, Father, we need You to make us alive towards You. We need You to make these tombs open up. We need the resurrection of the heart. We need You to make us alive in Christ. And I pray that this morning, as we think about and talk about the resurrection of Jesus, that the hope of His resurrection would be what captures our hearts as well. Our desire to live. Our longing to live past the grave. Our desire for the truth that You, by Your Holy Spirit, even now in this room, would make us alive towards You. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.